Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Uh, Last week, I had David Palman on the show. David Palman runs the YouTube channel Faith Because of Reason, and he's also one of the co-hosts of the podcast Proselytize or Apostatize. He runs the... uh, he, run, he co-hosts that podcast with David Russell, talk about apologetics and theology, and have all kinds of contents on there. They even have debates on there. I, I was on one of those debates, in fact. I uh, debated an atheist on the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, I was on that podcast four times, actually. So uh, uh, I have them all, all of those episodes. It's on YouTube, and it's on Anchor, the proselytize or apostatize podcast, so... Uh, you can find the episodes I was on either on Anchor or on YouTube. And on YouTube, on the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel, I have a, I have a playlist in which, which is, it's called something like other channel, other YouTube channels that I've appeared on. And it's just a list of all of the, uh, the shows that I've been a guest on and you could go watch them and, um, pretty cool. But I had, um... I had David Palman on last week, and we were talking about 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.4. Um, 2 Peter 3.9 says God wishes that, God doesn't will that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And 2, 1 Timothy 2.4 says God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we were analyzing different interpretations of that ver- of those verses that Calvinists have, because Calvinists, as you may well know, they do not believe that God wants everyone to be saved. They believe that God only wants certain individuals to be saved, individuals that, you know, for literally only God knows why, he has chosen these individuals and not others. Unconditional election. As a Molinist, I do believe in a form of unconditional election, if you've read my uh, my paper the Soteriological Case for Molinism, which I also did a podcast episode on way, way, way back in, like, uh, I don't know, episode 13. Uh, But my view of unconditional election is compatible with the God who wants all people to be saved. Uh, But that's all I'm going to go into that. I don't want to go off in too much of a rabbit trail. But today, I thought, hey, you know, since since last week's episode, uh, we were arguing against uh, a central tenet of Calvinism. I thought, why don't I continue that this week by talking about what I call the maximally great argument against Calvinism. Now, I believe that it is worthwhile to argue against Calvinism because, not only because I think Calvinism is false, but because I think Calvinism distorts the character of God it has several logical entailments that I think are heretical. I don't think Calvinism is a heresy, but I do think that a lot of what Calvinists teach, a lot of central tenets of Calvinism, logically entail heretical ideas. And also, I think 
well, I mean, I don't think Calvinists are heretics because, like, I've never met any of them who follow their views to the logical conclusions. Like, causal determinism. The idea that God causally determines literally everything that occurs. That would logically entail that God is the author of evil. That God is responsible for all evil that has ever occurred. What's worse is that God sends some people to hell for those sins that he caused them to do. He's punishing them in hell for what he caused them to do. He, cho he chooses not to save them. He chooses to save the elect only. He zaps them with irresistible grace and brings, brings them to repentance. But the non-elect, oh, he, he doesn't give them that irresistible grace. He, he doesn't give them any grace at all. So he just he sends them to hell for all of their sins. Sins that, according to the determinists, and most Calvinists are determinists, there are a few exceptions, like Greg Kokel and Alvin Plantinga. There are a few exceptions. There are some who believe in libertarian free will. But most Calvinists are determinists. And so they have to admit that God punishes people for essentially sins that he made them do. Now, I say made, not in the sense of coerce. They'll object, oh no, God doesn't make anyone do anything. You wanted to do sins. You wanted to you wanted to commit the sins you committed. I, I, I'm saying made in the same sense that I would say gravity made the apple fall from the tree. It's it's the cause producing the effect. I'm I'm not I don't mean to use the word make or made in coercive terms, in terms of forcing someone to do something against their will. Uh, no, I, I fully acknowledge that that is not what Calvinists believe. Most Calvinists hold to a, a philosophy called compatibilism, which kind of tries to hold on to the idea of free will and, got, and, and reconcile that with determinism. I don't think it succeeds. It's just, uh, as, one, as one of my Molinist friends put it, compatibilism is just hard determinism with extra steps. Compatibilism says that, yeah, we, we do what we want to do, or or some others would say we do what is our strongest desire, and we can only do what is our strongest desire. Others would say we, we, we act in accordance with our nature. We, we're, we're causally determined by our nature. The problem, though, is what causes you to have the desires that you do? What causes you to have the nature that you do? Well, what, whatever is the cause, if your desire causes you to sin, what caused you to have the desire? Well, if you, a lot of determinists would say it was God. And so it doesn't get God off the hook. It just pushes, it just pushes the problem back. So I think that this view, this, this whole soteriological system, combined with a deterministic view of providence, really makes God out to be a, a horrible ogre. Uh, I, I, like, I sometimes say that, have said off the cuff, off the record, that Calvinism makes God into an omnipotent demon. So that is why I think that it's important that we spend time arguing against it. And I got to applaud people like Tim Stratton of Free Thinking Ministries, who has devoted a lot of time and effort into arguing against determinism and TULIP. And he even wrote his dissertation on it, which I, I hope to read soon. It's being published by Wipkenstock. 
but and a lot of a lot of people become atheists because of this view. They did. They just can't come to worship a god like this, a god who would who doesn't love everyone, who wants most people to go to hell, who is literally the reason the Holocaust happened. They just can't worship a god like that. A lot of objections I receive from atheists I witness to are they're objecting to the Calvinist view of God. And so in my conversations with atheists, I actually end up debating either soteriology or I end up deba debating free will and divine providence with them. It's a huge stumbling block. I think it's as, at least as big of a stumbling block as young earth creationism is. So that's why I'm spending time... Uh, that's, on, that's why I wrote a lot of blog posts on Calvinism, and that's why... I had David Palman on last week. That's why I've written lengthy papers de defending Molinism, which I think does what the Calvinist wants, is to have a high view of, of divine sovereignty, but it doesn't make God the author of evil like determinism does. But today I'm not going to be arguing against determinism per se. I, my, the maximally great argument against Calvinism argues against that middle part of the tulip that says God doesn't want all people saved and Jesus didn't die for all people. So obviously I can make the argument from the Bible that God wants all people to be saved. I mean, there's a lot of blog posts. We talked about two of them last last week with David Palman, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Or some translations he say he wants all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And two verses later, Paul says, this is why Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice, as a ransom for all people, 1 Timothy 2.6. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he, that is Jesus, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. John 3.16-17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world. The world. Anyone who lived, for God so loved the world, that's not the planet Earth, but the people of planet Earth. You, me, Adolf Hitler, every single person you've ever met never will meet. Anyone who is part of the world, God loves him so much that he gave his only son. That is to say, to, over to death. Jesus died for our sins. He gave his only son. That whosoever, who's the whosoever? Whosoever out of the world believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And, and verse 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And we have 1 John 2, 2, and he, that says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in Luke 2.10, the angels that appeared to the shepherds in the field, you know, the Christmas story, the angel, 
Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Hebrews 2.9 says, Jesus tasted death for everyone. I could go on and on and on. There's so many biblical affirmations that Jesus, that God loves all people and that Jesus died for all people. But Calvinists find all sorts of ways to twist these scriptures and make them say other than what they appear to be saying. And so out of frustration of endless exegetical debates with Calvinists, just unable to convince them, I thought, how can I get this point across in a different way? Because the Bible obviously is not enough. I mean, no matter what, I, I can't even think of a Bible verse. I, I, thought, I tried to think, okay, if I were writing the Bible and I were trying to convey the thought that Jesus died for every individual human being, how, what would I say different than what the biblical writers said? I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything that someone adamant about clinging to the tulip couldn't twist in some way to make it say, oh, it just means all of the elect, or all some of all kinds of people, or all elect, it's the world of the elect. I couldn't think, I can't, I couldn't think of a single rendering of a verse that couldn't somehow be twisted to fit into the tulip. And so I thought of a philosophical argument that uses biblical evidence to support its premises. What are the premises of the argument? One, if God is a maximally great being, then he would love all people. Two, if God loves all people, he would desire to save all people. Three, if God desires to save all people, he would die on the cross to atone for the sins of all people and send provenient grace to all people. Four, God is a maximally great being. Five, therefore God loves all people. Six, therefore God wants to save all people. Seven, therefore God died on the cross for all people and sends all people provenient grace. This is a logically valid syllogism. The conclusion follows from the premises by the rule of hypothetical syllogism. Therefore, since the logic is valid, all one needs to do to reach the conclusion is to affirm that the four premises are true. So, are these premises true, or are they false? Well, let's look at them. Premise 1 says, If God is a maximally great being, then he would love all people. When I say a maximally great being, I mean a being who has all great-making properties and has them to the greatest extent possible. A maximally great being is one who has every property that, if a person were to possess that trait, would make him a great person. And since he is great to the maximal extent, he possesses these traits to the highest degree that one can possess them. A maximally great being would possess traits like power, knowledge, moral goodness, and presence, and would possess them to the highest degree possible. That means he would be omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, morally perfect, and he would be necessarily existent, since I think it's intuitively greater for one's existence to be logically necessary than for one to just happen to exist. Uh, if you've read my book, The Case for the One True God, or if you've read any of the blog posts on CerebralFaith.net about the ontological argument, this idea of a maximally great being will be familiar to you, because the ontological argument demonstrates, via modal logic, 
that if the existence of such a being is possible, then it follows that such a being actually exists. I did a podcast episode way back in the early days of this uh, of this podcast about the ontological argument as well. So I think it's like episode five, six, or seven. Uh, so anyway, I mean, you can buy the book, The Case for the One True God, for an in-depth defense of the ontological argument, or you can just go over to CerebralFaith.net and see all, you know, all of the blog posts uh, in which I defend the argument and uh, refute different objections to the argument. Anyway, I agree with St. Anselm that God must be a maximally great being in order to be God. If there were a being you could conceive of greater than God, then... The former being would actually be God, not the latter. If you can think of a being greater than God, then that being is God. And whatever you were previously thinking of is a false God. Now, why would being maximally great entail that God loves all people? Oh, and by the way, Mr. Calvinist, when I say all people, I mean the entire human race. Every single human being who ever was, is currently, or ever will exist. Every single homo sapien who ever has, is, or will exist. I don't mean some of all kinds of people. You can, uh, you can twist the Bible's words, but I'm not going to let you twist my words. Uh, but anyway, why would God's maximal greatness entail that? Because I think it's intuitively obvious that a God who would love all of his creatures is a greater being than one who only loves those who give him worship and service. A God who loves all people to the greatest extent possible is a greater being than a God who only loves a selected few and hates all the rest. I think if you were to interview 500 different people on the street and ask them, is God greater if he loves all people, or is he greater if he only loved some? I doubt very many would come back and say, no, I think, I think a being of limited love is greater than a being with unlimited love. Many Calvinists, by the way, you may be surprised to hear, actually agree with this. There are some Calvinists who believe that God hates the non-elect, but not all of them do. I, the ones that do... Um, uh, A.W. Pink immediately comes to mind, uh, but ones who argue that God loves all people would be Calvinists like John Piper. Uh, John Piper, however, would say God loves all people in some sense. Uh, Piper believes God, God loves all people in some sense or another. He would just say that he doesn't love them in the same way that he loves the elect. Now, I actually agree with that. Be, I, I believe God's love for Christians and non-Christians, while I believe it's the same in quantity, I don't believe it's the same in quality. This is because God's relationships with Christians and non-Christians is different. With Christians, he, he stands in relation as Heavenly Father. See John chapter 1, verse 12. With non-Christians, he stands in relation as an enemy. But he loves all people equally. He doesn't love some more than others. But they, but God has a different kind of relationship with Christians than he does with non-Christians. So it's different It's different in quality, but not in quantity. Um, you may have the same amount of love for your wife as you do with your children, but you don't have sex with your children. Or at least I hope you don't. If you, should, if you do, you should go to prison. Uh, but you only have sex with your wife. You love your wife and your kids, you may love them both the same, but you love them in different ways because you have a different kind of relationship with your wife than you do with your kids. Uh, 
Likewise, God has a, a special kind of love for his children, but he, he doesn't have that for non-Christians. But again, this is a difference in type, not in amount. I applaud Calvinists like Piper for trying to hold on to the omnibenevolence of God and not sacrificing it like Calvinists uh, such as A.W. Pink do. However, I find it very hard to reconcile omnibenevolence with Calvinist doctrines like unconditional election and limited atonement. This leads to, my, uh, to the defense of my second premise. Two, if God loves all people, he would desire to save all people. If God loves all people, then why think that he wouldn't do something to save us all from the sin situation we're in? Romans 3.23 and Psalm chapter 14 verses 2 to 4 make it very clear that the entire human race has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've all become corrupt. We've all done, you know, we're all bad to some extent or another. We, we're all, none of us are perfect. We're all sinners. And Romans 3.23 Romans says that the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death is exactly what it sounds like, spiritual death. It's the second death, as Revelation says. It's perishing, as John 3.16 says. Or as, as Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, it's a total destruction of both your body and your soul. It's not eternal torment. But I digress. If God really loved someone, wouldn't he desire that person, wouldn't he desire to keep that person from either annihilation or eternal torment, regardless of what you think hell might be? If you loved someone, you would want to keep someone f from either dying or being in an eternity of, un of unremitting pain, right? 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says that the fate of the damned is eternal destruction. Wouldn't God desire not to be separated from the ones that he loves? Think about it. You, you wouldn't want to be separated from the ones you love forever, would you? No. In fact, we don't even want to be separated from them for a, a small amount of time, much less eternity. That's why even Chris, that's why Christians cry at funerals. If the person knew Christ, yeah, we know that we'll see them again someday, but we mourn because we know we believe that's going to be a while and we're going to miss them in the meantime. We're going to have a lot of days in which we're not going to hear their laugh or or see their smile. Non-Christians mourn at funerals even worse because they believe that such separation is forever. They believe their loved one went out of existence and they'll never see them again. In the old days, people would cry when their loved ones went on long voyages because they knew that they would it would be a while before they saw them again. We don't want to be separated from the people we love for a small amount of time. Doesn't it stand to reason that God wouldn't want to be separated from the people he loves for an infinite amount of time? Moreover, if you knew that your child or your wife was uh, going to be sent to the electric chair or a torture chamber to pay for the crimes that they committed, wouldn't you want to do something, anything, to stop them? Wouldn't you want to try to kill the kidnappers or volunteer to, to take their place? Christian philosopher Jerry Wine... Uh, Jerry Wines. <laughs> Jerry... Christian philosopher Jerry Walls defines love as follows, quote, If God truly loves all persons, then he does all he can, he can properly do to secure their true flourishing. 
The flourishing of all persons is only secured in a right relationship with God, in which their nature as free beings is respected, and they freely accept his love and are saved. End quote. Now, even if one was to assert that love does not necessitate freedom, contra-causal freedom, at the very least, true. At the very least, we can agree that true flourishing necessitates an eternal relationship with God. Love, by definition, desires the good of the one loved. If you love someone, you desire what's best for them. This is why parents discipline their children. They know that if they don't discipline their children, they'll grow up not respecting others, and they won't behave correctly in society, and it'll mean a world of trouble for them. This is the Bi This is what the Bible says. The Bible says in Proverbs 13.24, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. And in Proverbs 22.15 it says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Parents look for the best colleges and do their best to try to pay for, for their kids to go there. They want their kids to get a good education so that they'll have successful careers. Why? Why do they do this? The answer is obvious. They love their children. Having folly driven away, Proverbs 22.15, and getting a good education and career are, are things that are good for that person. Ergo, parents do their best to raise their kids, teach them to behave right, and get them an education. Love is the motivation for doing this. Love desires the good of the one loved. Now, if you're still skeptical about this definition of love, consider 1 Corinthians 13, the most famous Bible passage on love. It's read at pretty much every wedding. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 8. Consider the fact that this passage says, Love is kind, that love does not dishonor others. That it does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. The reason love is all these things is that these things seek the good of the person who is loved. What would be a great what could be a greater kindness than to die on the cross to atone for someone's sins and then send them grace to enable and persuade them? to accept that sacrifice so that he could be registered as a sub as their substitute. If God loves all people, wouldn't he show them the kindness of providing a way to enter an eternity of bliss via an everlasting relationship with him? Wouldn't he avoid dishonoring people by having them enter the domain of eternal shame? This is what this is what Daniel 12:2 says damnation is. It is eternal shame. It shames the, the persons. And, you know, back when the Bible was written, I mean, they lived in an honor-shame society, so this was, this was, a, this was really, really scary. It wasn't, it wasn't just either uh, eternal torment or annihilation. It was, sh it, they were going to be shamed as well. They were going to be rem remembered in, in heaven for all eternity as the, the unrepentant, rebellious sinner who rejected 
God and and did bad things and didn't repent. It was it, they would be shamed, and that was a much much bigger deal back in the ancient Near East and in uh, Greco-Roman society. Wouldn't God, if God loves Bob, wouldn't he want to protect him from his judgment? I would say yes to all of these questions. If, a, if God does not do these things for Bob, Sue, and Sam then the only logical explanation must be that God doesn't love Bob, Sue, and Sam. But, as we've, as we've just seen, if God doesn't love all people, then he isn't maximally great. And if he isn't maximally great, then he isn't the one true God. But God is maximally great. Therefore, he loves all people. And because he loves all people, therefore he would desire to spend eternity with all people. Let's move on to premise three. Premise 3 says, if God desires to save all people, he would die on the cross to atone for the sins of all people and send prevenient grace to all people. I think that the truth of this premise is obvious and self-evident. If Surely if God wanted to save anyone, he would make arrangements to do precisely that. The Bible tells us that God became a man. See John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 and verse 14 and Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. And as the human version of the invisible God, Colossians 1, 15, was crushed by the Father, Isaiah 53, 10. He died on the cross to atone for our sins. He paid the fine in full. See 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. All one has to do to be saved is to call upon him, fall at his mercy, and ask for forgiveness. See Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Confer Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It is not disputed among Christians, Calvinists, Arminians, open theists, uh, that Jesus, a.k.a. God incarnate, died for sinners. The debate is over how many sinners. Well, we've seen that God is a maximally great being, and as a maximally great being, he loves all people. Because he loves all people, he therefore wants all people saved. Isn't it just common sense to think that if God wants all people saved, he would, he would take a few steps <laughs> towards making that happen? If I want something to eat, I, I go out into the kitchen and I make myself a sandwich. I don't just sit in bed thinking about, oh gosh, I sure wish I had a sandwich. I take steps to feed my hunger. If I desire a relationship with a woman, I ask her out. I don't just sit, I just don't just, I don't just sit around sitting about, ask, uh, thinking about asking her out. Obvious, obviously, since premises one and two are true, it seems to me that three is true as well. I, I don't think it makes sense to think that God lo would love someone, but would take no steps whatsoever to get them salvation. Dying on the cross, shedding his blood, sending the, the spirit of grace, all of these were necessary to procure our salvation. Hebrews 9.22 sa even says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus had to die on the cross or else no one could be possibly forgiven. That's what Hebrews 9.22 says. Moreover, given the truth of premise 2, 
we can infer the truth of premise 3 on the basis of John 15:13. In John 15:13, Jesus says, "Greater love has no man than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends." John 15:13 says, "The greatest demonstration of love is to sacrifice your life so that others can live." If a maximally great people, uh, if a maximally great being loves all people and he loves them maximally, then per John 15:13, a maximally great being would die so that we could all live. Premise 3 is true. God's love for all people would not only prompt him to die on the cross due to him for the sins of all people, but it also means that God would send grace to all people. Why? Because if God doesn't send people grace, then they would be unable to repent. How do we know this? Because Jesus said in John 6:44, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them." He also said this in John 6:65. 6, if no one can come to Jesus unless they're drawn, that's a that's a that's a symptom of total depravity. By the way, not being able to come to to God unless the Father draws them. Uh, if if we can't come to Christ unless we're drawn, and God wants all people to come, then God will draw all people. And by the way, Jesus actually says this in John 12:32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, um, I'm not going to talk about whether this drawing is resistible or irresistible uh, for time, but I'm going to move on. I'm just going to move on to premise four. Premise four says God is a maximally great being. Now, in chapter five of my book, The Case for the One True God, uh, I defend a syllogism for the existence of a maximally great being. I already mentioned this. Uh, it's called the, the ontological argument. Specifically, it's the modal ontological argument. It's the version of the ontological argument that Alvin Plantinga formulated. Uh, this argument shows that if it's even possible that an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, morally perfect, necessarily existing being exists, then he exists in all possible worlds, including the actual world, and therefore a maximally great being exists, or therefore God exists. Um, now, any Christian should tread lightly in denying that the Christian God is a maximally great being, i.e. denying that this premise is false. For such a denial would be an affirmation that the triune God of Christianity is a false God. My Calvinist friends would be wise to agree with this premise, lest they actually be heretics. For if the for the ontological argument is sound, a maximally great being does exist. If you deny this premise, then you deny that the being that the ontological argument proves exists isn't the biblical God. It's some other God. That's that's in fact in my book, the case for the one true God. This is this is what I I use this argument to evaluate other conceptions of deity, and I use this argument to rule out uh, Islam's conception of God, uh, the uh, Judaism's Unitarian Yahweh, and many of the polytheistic gods of uh, Roman mythology and stuff. You know, they're they're not they're not a they're not maximally great beings. They don't meet the criteria. That's why they're not the one true God. So. 
you might argue, well, but a maximally great being doesn't need to be all-loving. God could be maximally great and not be all-loving. You, you could argue that, but that would not be a denial of premise four. That would be a denial of premise one. Uh, and you're free to disagree with premise one if you wish, but you should give arguments for why a being is greater if he loves a select few rather than all. Now, with these four premises, steps five, six, and seven are not premises. They're they're conclusions that fall from that, that follow from one, two, three, and four. Five, therefore, God loves all people. Six, therefore, God wants to save all people. Uh, seven, therefore, God died on the cross for all people and sends provenient grace for all people. Step five follows from one and four. Six follows from two and five. And seven follows from three and six. And given the truth of the two premises, the conclusion follows. Now, I made this argument and I wrote about it years ago. Years ago. Let me check. Let me let me see. Let me pull it. Let me pull up the arg the argument, the blog post I wrote about it. Um, it was like I don't know, uh, up 2017, September of 2017 that I wrote a blog, the blog post, and it wasn't until uh, this year. It wasn't until earlier this year that I actually started to have Calvinists interact with the argument. And the first is Jim Bosher of ThereforeGodExist.com. I'm not going to talk about the contents of all of these articles. Uh, th this... It actually kind of started a blog war between me and Ed Dingus of Reformed Reasons. Um, but I, I do want to address some of their objections on the podcast here today. I'll include the blog posts in the show notes so you can go look at other arguments they give and how I deal with them. Now, Jim Bosher, in his uh, in his blog post titled Minimizing the Maximally Great Argument for Arminianism, which, by the way, it's, it's not an argument for Arminianism. I called it that at first. I think the original blog post is titled that, but I've renamed it The Maximally Great Argument Against Calvinism. And here's why. The conclusion, the argument could actually be used by a universalist. Uh, you know, everyone's saved. It, it, the conclusion is actually open-ended as to whether or not God will actually get what he wants, whether or not there will be some who resist God's grace and go to hell, or whether God will get what he wants eventually. You know, maybe the people in hell uh, repent and they all go to heaven. It leaves that an open question. So it's really against Calvinism. It, an Arminian can use it. A Universalist can use it. It leaves it an open question as to whether or not God whether or not everyone will be saved. It just, the argument just concludes God wants all to be saved and has taken steps to make that happen. You know, he died on the cross and rose from the dead and sends grace to all people. And maybe some will resist that grace until the day they die and end up uh, being punished for their sins. Or maybe they won't. You know, the argument leaves it an open question. We, we have to look at we have to do our biblical study. We have to we we have to do further investigation to see whether or not this bare conclusion that God has taken steps towards universal salvation, whether or not that actually comes to pass. But anyway, in that article, he in objection one uh, that I 
one of his objections is that premise one needs intuition for verification, and intuition is not, an epi- is not epistemologically sound. This is what he wrote, quote, If I do not share this intuition, the argument stops right there. Nothing after this point matters. He, that is me, he's, uh, has not made any attempt to convince someone who does not agree. He literally just shared his opinion, which does nothing to establish a premise in an argument. There are people who have the opposite intuition. God's love does not extend to those who have done horrible things. Evan has made no a- uh, effort to convince those who do not share his intuition beyond saying it's so obvious, end quote. First, let me say that I've always held the intuition... Uh, I've always held the belief that intuition is a valid epistemological, uh, intuition is epistemologically sound, unless there's a good reason to suspect it's wrong. In other words, in the absence of any defeaters, we're justified in affirming our intuitions. We're justified in believing that our intuitions are true unless some defeater comes along. What's a defeater? A defeater is either a logical argument or some kind of evidence that shows that what you intuit is not in fact the case. For example, we intuitively realize that objective good and evil are features of the world, that our cognitive faculties are functioning properly, or that the universe was made by an intelligent creator. In the absence of some reason to affirm that our intuitions are wrong, we are not unjustified in saying that they are true. Our intuitions are by no means infallible. We can, th- we can think of many intuitions that have been defeated in the past, like the intuition that the sun moves instead of the earth. Rather, what I'm saying is that a person is rational to take his intuition as a priori true unless some a posteriori reason warrants that it be discarded. Boucher didn't do anything in his article to undermine this intuition. Rather, he just attacked intuition as an epistemological route entirely. He, he had just attacked intuition as a basis for knowledge claims in general rather than offering any defeaters. Now, uh, in, in fact, I had... Um, I have I have an, an agnostic friend who uh, frequents the Cerebral Faith Facebook page and the blog, and we've had many, many, many discussions on a variety of different topics. Um, it's always an enjoyable time. He's a very thoughtful individual. Um, and when I was given the moral argument, um, in one of the comment sections of the blog post, he made the argument that... Um, uh, let me see. What, what was it that he said? Um, what he said was it essentially boils down to look, plenty of intuitions have been falsified in the past, so we should always be suspicious of our intuitions, even if one's even if a specific one in question is not falsified. Um, I, I addressed this objection, by the way, in a, a video I've made on the moral argument. It's not up on the website yet, but you can uh, you can get access to it if you are a cerebral faith patron. Uh, but that's like the fourth objection to the second premise that I respond to, and uh, what I what I think what I think that Beauchamp is getting at is what happens if two people have competing intuitions on X. It would seem that an additional argument would need to be made. Um, both could claim they're justified in believing their intuition in the absence of a defeater. 
Let's say I had an intuition that gravity did not exist, and you had an opposite intuition. Well, then, based on the law of excluded, the logical law of excluded middle, we know that one of us is wrong. Thus, we need additional arguments to show who has the wrong intuition. And I, I think, you know, Boshiro is right. Yeah, some people do intuit that a good God would hate evil people, and that He would only love people who are upright and standing citizens. Yeah, I'm, that's. Yeah, there's there's people out there. Okay, so, uh, so I, you know, they have a competing intuition. So what do we do about establishing premise one? Well, good news. After I read Boucher's argument, I came up with an argument that doesn't rely on intuition. Uh, this is this is what happens when iron sharpens iron. Um, and uh, what I, what I what I came up with was a deductive argument, the conclusion of which is the first premise of the maximally great argument against Calvinism. It goes like this. One, a maximally great being has all great-making properties to the greatest extent possible. Two, love is a great-making property. Three, therefore, a maximally great being has love to the greatest extent possible. Four, loving all individuals is necessary for love to be at its greatest possible extent. Five, therefore, a maximally great being would love all individuals. Step three follows from one and two. Conclu the conclusion, step five, follows from three and four. Premise one is true by definition. The very definition of a maximally great being is to have all great-making properties to their greatest extent, even if we dis dispute what those great-making properties are. I don't think Calvinists would want to deny, too, that love is a great-making property. I don't think they want to deny that. That that seems patently unbiblical, if anything else. And as for non-Christians, well, I mean, this argument isn't aimed at them anyway. The Bible certainly seems to support the idea that love is a great-making property. I mean, just read 1 Corinthians 13. Paul seems to think love is a pretty darn good thing. In fact, he says, if I have, you know, all these different things, if I, you know, if I can prophesy and I I have all knowledge of of everything and I know, you know, uh, I can't, how did that passage go? Anyway, Paul says, if I had all sorts of different spiritual gifts but I didn't have love, I'd have nothing. That's how that's how that's how great Paul thinks love is. He thinks love is greater than everything else, and if he lacks love, then it doesn't it doesn't care what else he's got. If he can speak in tongues and prophesy and and, and all that, it just it doesn't matter. So, if you want to be biblical, you got to affirm premise tr premise two. Um, but I think premise two can be bolstered philosophically as well, even without relying on the Bible. But if you're a Christian, and this is what the maxim, this is what the maximally great argument against Calvinism is aimed at, it's aimed at Christians who affirm a patently absurd soteriology, uh, it'd be, it would behoove you to affirm premise two. Um... But give, given the, the truth of premises one and two, it follows that therefore a maximally great being has 
love to the greatest extent possible. What about premise four? Well, I think it's rather obvious that the greatest extent possible would be to love all people to an infinite extent. I take the truth of this premise <clears throat> to be more than just intuitive. I take it to be axiomatic. If someone loves some individuals but not others, we can imagine a being who has a greater magnitude of love than that, namely one who loves all people. A being who loves all people has a much more widely encompassing degree of love than someone who just is just selectively loving. Moreover, a, a being who loves all individuals to the deepest extent uh, to the deepest extent is greater than one. A being who loves some people to the deepest extent. Two, a being who loves all people, but to a less than deepest extent. And three, is greater than one who loves no one at all to any extent. Ergo, I still hold that the omnibenevolence of God logically follows from perfect being theology. Ergo, any theology that denies that God is omnibenevolent denies that God is a maximally great being. Uh, from the truth of the premises, the conclusion follows. And the conclusion of this deductive argument is actually the first premise of the maximally great argument against Calvinism. Jim Boucher also has an objection to premise three that he calls the competing desire argument. He wrote, quote, but, uh, Jesus did not want to die on the cross. Luke twenty two forty two, He had more than one desire, and more than anything, he wanted to do God's will, even though it meant his death and condemnation. A Christian missionary does not want to leave his family, but they do so that they may fulfill God's will. Soldiers go to war, they leave their family. Fathers and mothers go to work, even though they, they have to leave their children for the day. It's difficult, but sometimes people have more than one desire. End quote. And so he, he goes on to argue that even if one grants premise two uh, of the maximally great argument for against, uh, against Calvinism, uh, we can't infer from that that God would take action to save all people. He said, quote, to refute this premise, I only need to point out the possibility that God has more than one desire, end quote. I would say that to refute the premise, you need to do more than just point out the possibility that God has more than one desire. Possibilities come cheap. You have to actually show that God has a desire that is more important to him than the salvation of human souls, and he also, uh, and you also have to demonstrate that his desire, that this desire and his desire for universal salvation are mutually exclusive. Just about anything is possible. Possibilities come cheap, and Boucher knows it. Um, and by the way, uh, this whole competing desire argument, this is what John Piper... Uh, John Piper is famous for popularizing this argument. This is how John Piper gets around the idea that, oh, even though God loves all people, uh, he doesn't want to save all people, because, you know, if he saved all people, then he'd have to... then his glory would be minimized. And, uh, well, we can't have that, so... Sorry... Uh, you know, he wants his glory to be maximized, and he wants to save all people, but he just can't have both, so he chooses his glory over, over saving everyone. That's, that's John Piper's position. Um, now, elsewhere, Beauchore wrote, 
quote, it is logically possible for God to want everybody to be saved, but have a greater desire that his justice and wrath are put on display for the sake of his glorification, end quote. The argument here is that, uh, and I've heard this from many Calvinists, not just Jim Boucher and not just from John Piper, but that the damned must be damned in order for God to be glorified. You know, it's either it's either God's maximized glory or universal salvation. God, God just can't have both. This idea is plagued with issues. It's just, it, it's plagued with issues. First is that it paints God as a glory hog who must eternally torment or annihilate people in order to be fully glorified. Sorry, I'd like to save you, but my glory is just way more important to me. I have to causally determine you to sin and then punish you for the sin I caused you to do so people can see how great I am. What kind of God is that? Another problem with this explanation is that it seems to remove freedom from God. In order... In order for God to be 100% glorified, he has to create the damned. He's not free to save everyone if he wants to. Oh, wait a minute. I thought the Calvin... Doesn't the Calvinist emphatically insert that God can causally determine everything if he wants to? Because, oh, what was that psalm that says, oh, the Lord does as he pleases? Oh, well, apparently not. Apparently, apparently not. And not in this case, anyway. God doesn't have the freedom to refrain from... In fact, in fact, God doesn't even have the freedom to, to refrain from creating anything at all. He has to create a universe so that the damned exist. Otherwise, he's not as glorified as he could be. This contradicts, this contradicts the traditional view that, God, that creation is a free act of God. God created the world because he wanted to, not because he had to. Not because he was lacking anything. How could a maximally how how could God be a maximally great being if he was lacking in glory? And doesn't the Bible explicitly say that God doesn't need anything? Oh wait, it does. Acts chapter 17 verses 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by humans' hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul's, in this passage, Paul says that God doesn't, unlike the pagan gods that his audience worship, live in temples made by human hands. And uh, if you've heard my series on, if you've read my paper on Genesis 1 or listened to any of the podcast episodes that I've recorded on Genesis 1, you'll know that maybe, you know, one of the reasons is that the whole cosmos is God's temple. Moreover, if, if God must damn people in order to fully be glorified, doesn't that, it, how does that not entail that God needs something from us? Namely, he, ha he has to damn some of us so he can show off his wrathfulness. And finally, finally, let's, let's concede for the sake of the argument that the, that God has to show his wrath. He has to be wrathful. He has to display his wrath in order to be fully glorified. There's no getting around it. Why wasn't the cross of Christ enough to do that? Why wasn't the cross of Christ enough to fulfill that desire? 
Is it not true that God's wrath was on full display at the cross? Jesus was suffering the penalty for our sins. He became sin. He, he who knew no sin became sin for us, the Bible says. It's, it's just really a problem. And uh, finally, the, the apologist Dr. Tim Stratton points out another problem with the competing desires argument. I told you it was plagued with issues, didn't I? Uh, and, and this issue that Stratton points out is that it entails that God desires sin. If all people being saved would detract from God's glory, and God desires all to be saved— then it follows that God desires something that would detract from his glory. Stratton writes, and I quote, Why would God even have a desire for something that would detract from or negate his glory? Anything that does not bring glory to God is evil. It seems that the Calvinist inadvertently contends that God has a desire, albeit a lesser one, to sin. Since God is a maximally great being, and a maximally great being is morally, is morally perfect, we must reject the competing desires argument. Given the problems with the competing desires argument, we must conclude that if God does desire all to be saved, he would do something to get them saved, such as dying on the cross for them and sending them grace. There's simply no reason to think that making salvation available to every individual would cancel out some desire or need of God's. If Beauchere wants to maintain this rebuttal as a, def uh, as a defeater to premise three of, of the maximally great argument against Calvinism, he's got to show that uh, people have to go to hell uh, in order for God to be maximally glor glorified, for one thing. Um, finally, I want to address uh, one response from Ed Dingus. Uh, Ed, Edward Dingus is, uh, he's a, he's a theologian. He's pat, it says on his website, he's pastored several churches in three states. He holds a PhD in systematic theology. Uh, his, his website is Reformed Reasons. He's got a blog and a podcast about apologetics and theology. Uh, and he, he wrote a blog post responding to the maximally great argument because he's a Calvinist and he has to deal with it. Uh, and one of the objections, and I'm gonna I'm gonna link the uh, all of the articles in the show notes so you can read them all. Because I'm not gonna I'm running on 57 minutes. I'm not gonna talk about all of them. But uh, uh, one of the objections, uh, well, well, first I, I gave my argument that I. You know the the stronger supporting argument for premise one beyond mere intuition that I I gave, uh, and, and Dingus didn't really, or or Dingus I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, he didn't really deal with it. Um, all he did was complain that it wasn't an exegetical argument; it was a philosophical argument. He's got a very low view of philosophy, and it shows in his sloppy thinking. Um, of course, I can I can give exegetical arguments for the conclusion, but the whole point of this is that Calvinists are the whole point of the maximally great argument against Calvinism is that Calvinists are incredibly skilled at doing hermeneutical gymnastics 
when it comes to biblical passages that contradict Tulip, and those passages are many. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to think of the character Neo from The Matrix when when he just when he dodges a barrage of bullets coming at him, and uh, you, know, you could make a meme out of that, and all the all of the bullets could be biblical verses that refute the Tulip, but they just dodge them all. Um. So I mean the the this this argument that I'm talking about today on the podcast it, it's meant to get around that issue of Calvinists giving the Bible the wax nose treatment. If the argument goes through, then that might be a good reason to interpret all people as all people and not all kinds of people and the whole world as being the whole world, not the the, the whole world in which the elect live. Uh, anyway. Ed, the problem that Ding, one of the problems that Dingus has, is that he says he what he does is he tries to reduce the argument to absurdity by saying that it entails that God loves the devil. He th- he re- he ridicules that idea. He says, "Oh, it's silly to think that God loves Satan." Well, I don't I don't think so. <coughs> I don't think so. And uh, neither does William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig uh, affirms that God loves the devil in uh, his art- in Question of the Week, number 524, Does God Love the Devil? Uh, Dr. Craig wrote, quote, I feel no awkwardness whatsoever in affirming that God most certainly does love Satan. Indeed, what I should find awkward would be affirming that he does not. God is a perfectly loving being whose love is not based on a person's performance. Satan is a person, indeed, on the traditional conception, an angelic person of unparalleled beauty and perfection among creatures. How could God not love him? The fact that that person is now fallen and unspeakably evil does not imply that God ceases to love him any more than he ceased to love us when we fell and became enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 10, end quote. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree with everything Craig said there in that in that citation. Now Dingus says, "Quote: Examine Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and then tell me what God's attitude towards Satan is. And if you conclude that it's love, I have some healthcare professionals you should probably see." End quote. <laughs> I get the feeling that Dingus thinks that uh, because Satan will be punished for his evil, God must not love him. Now I've always been puzzled by this kind of thinking. And it's always in the Reformed circles that I find it. That, oh, you know, if God punishes someone, he doesn't love them. I, this, I, I address this uh, in my blog post uh, titled, Does God Love Everyone? And here's what I wrote. Quote, I'm quoting myself here. Think of it this way. If you're a parent, I think my following illustration will have a great impact on you uh, than if you aren't. But let's say, let's suppose you're a judge and your son gets arrested on murder charges. The evidence overwhelmingly points to his guilt, and you cannot deny the fact that he is guilty. You, as a just and righteous judge, must sentence him to death. Now I suppose it would break your heart to have to do this, but if you're truly a a judge of perfect justice, it would be immoral for you to turn a blind eye. Do you hate your son? Do you despise him? Is your love for him gone? I know of many fathers and mothers who would say no. You still love him, but you hate what he did, and your heart breaks that you have to sentence him to the chair or lethal injection. 
God is the same way. God is a holy and righteous judge, and he will deliver judgment upon the wicked. Psalm chapter 9, verses 7 to 8. Psalm chapter 9, verse 16. Psalm chapter 10. Psalm chapter 11, verse 16. Psalm chapter 103, verse 6. That said, we are told by the Almighty himself, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Ezekiel 18.23 And say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Ezekiel 33.11 God judges the wicked, but he doesn't like to. He would rather that they repent so that he could forgive them. End quote. That's, uh, that's from my article, Does God Love Everyone? Now, when I wrote that, I specifically had unredeemed humanity in mind, but it apply I think it applies to fallen angels, too. The point here is that judgment does not equal hatred or a lack of love. And... Now, of course, but of course, that raises the question, well, why doesn't God take any steps to save fallen angels? Well, here I actually think that the double, the competing desires argument that Jimbo sure tried to apply uh, to God not saving the elect, I think, I think it actually applies in this situation. God may very well want fallen angels to be redeemed, but that may not be feasible. The early church fathers held... And uh, I've read a, I've read a bit about this in the book I'm currently reading, Answers to Giant Questions: How the How Understanding the Biblical Nephilim Will Enlarge Your Faith by T.J. Stedman. And uh, by the way, I'm gonna ha I hope to have him on this podcast, uh, maybe either next week or the week after that, but soon. Uh, he you know he he says, and this is what the early church fathers argued that Christ had to assume the human nature in order to save the human nature. That which is not assumed is not saved. Uh, and this was the problem they had with uh, Apollinarius, his view, his view of the Incarnation. They thought it caused a sort of truncated view of Christ's nature, that Christ wasn't fully human. Uh, now, William Lane Craig says that Apollinarius was misunderstood, and I, I, think, I think that's correct, but... I, I I think what Apollinarius said about you know his view of the incarnation I don't think it led to the sort of monophysitism that the early church fathers thought it did. But regardless, Christ has to be fully human in order to save humanity. And as T.J. Stedman says in the book I'm currently reading, one of the conditions for being saved is that we have to we have to be human. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But one of the conditions is we just have to be. We just have to be human. So it, it may be the case that Christ could not assume a human nature and an angel nature and die for human the sins of humans and the sins for angels. He may have had to choose one or the other. He may have had to choose, okay, am I going to save my fallen sons of God? The the ones that the one that Psalm eighty two the ones that Psalm eighty two talks about, or am I going to save my human sons who are estranged from me? I gotta choose one or the other. I choose humans. So 
yeah, God, the, that I think is a very plausible. I think the I think that's a plausible explanation. And here, it's not because oh well, saving both the humans and angels. It's not like the the argument that God can't save the elect and the non-elect because it would detract from His glory. God can't save humans and angels because he he may not be. It may be. It may not be feasible to be fully human, fully God, and fully angel. <laughs> it. I don't know. That's uh, that's a plausible explanation that I think works. Uh, maybe that's not the reason. Uh, I am speculating here, but that that is at least a possible explanation as to why angels cannot be saved. And Michael Heiser, to give some biblical arguments um, in his uh, Hebrews series on the Naked Bible podcast, that no, uh, angels can't be saved. Fallen angels, that is. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast. Uh, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna show this. I'm gonna link to all of the blog posts that uh, follow the conversation I had with Ed Dingus uh, and uh, Jim Bosher's article uh, in the show notes, so you can uh, see our back and forth. Because it's really I'm really I'm really glad that Jim Bosher and Ed Dingus uh, took the time to critique the article because I really wasn't, it really helped me to be more confident in its soundness because I, I had this argument. I think, gosh, it really looks, it looks really good. It looks sound. It looks like the premise. It looks like the premises are true. Um, but when, when I had some Calvinists try to knock it down and they weren't able to, and they gave some shoddy responses, I'm like, yeah, maybe this is sound after all. Um, and maybe after this podcast, maybe I'll get more interaction with it. Um, that um, you know, maybe maybe make it a podcast episode about this, and hey, maybe I'll make a YouTube video about it someday. Um, I'm still going through the natural theology arguments, uh, but uh, yeah, maybe I'll get some more interaction with it, and maybe, hopefully, I'll convince some people to stop being Calvinists. It's a very bad theological system. I am as Protestant as they come, and I think the reformers are right. I think the Calvin, I think the Catholic Church got corrupt, and I was, I think it was good. I think the, the reformers, uh, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, uh, they got a lot of stuff right, but they got a lot of stuff wrong. And uh, the, their soteriology, not all of it, total depravity, perseverance of the saints. Justification by faith alone. That that's that's all good, but that uli, what Jerry Walls calls the uli in the middle, uli, that, that's bad. And hopefully, uh, by the way, Jacob Arminius was a reformer, so it, hopefully, I can convince some of you people out there, if you're a Calvinist, uh, to abandon that view. So thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I want to give a shout-out to my patrons, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, <coughs> Austin Long, Kevin Walker, don't worry, I don't have the Rona, uh, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to support the ministry, and uh, go to www.patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. Peace out, God bless, and until next time, keep using the brains that God gave you.